You're listening to the sermon audio from Covenant Church at Tuscaloosa. Our prayers that this encourages you in the Lord. Y'all can be seated. Just so you may close this. Well, good morning. I'm glad to see everyone today. If you don't know who I am, my name is Jared. I'm one of the elders here at Covenant Church. And I hope you had a great week, and I'm glad to see you this Lord's Day. Uh, if you've been with us for a while, we've been in Ephesians. So you can turn to Ephesians. And we've been going through it for a few weeks, and we find ourselves at the end of chapter 2. And even me, I'm trying to find it right now. Here we are. So, my task this morning is going to be to talk and to teach on what I'm calling the reconciled church of Christ. So, I would like to draw our attention to those verses before us. It's going to be chapter 2, verses 19 to 22. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 22. Here is the word of the Lord. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together in a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, here I am. Lord, I've asked that you give me strength to teach your word. Lord, open my lips so I may praise you and present Christ to all who are here. Lord, open our eyes so that we may behold him and receive him as our own. Lord, thank you for the grace you show us. And so, Lord, I just ask that you be with us in this moment. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, here we are. It's March 6, 2022. President Biden has just completed his first year. And I know some of you are probably like, has it only been a year? And hopefully it will go fast. So global tension, though, seems to be at its worst uh, with Russia and Ukraine and everything else. Uh, This world seems more fragmented than ever before. But at least that's just what we feel like in our time frame. Yet the one cry we hear all around us, the one beating drum that sounds within the streets, the one word that is cried upon the tops of the rooftops is unity, unity, unity. We see it all around us. Signs desiring unity, whether it be national unity, sexual unity, economic unity, religious unity, and so on and so on. We live in a culture that hates definitions, but they use words as ingredients to achieve unity while defining it. Words like acceptance, love, conformity, equity. Yet with every push for unity, it only furthers the divide divide, because they have built it on a foundation of no absolutes, 
relative to one's own actions, experiences, and thoughts, resulting in the building of more barriers that we must overcome and the more barriers that divide us. Do you hear their longing for oneness? Do you hear their cry for unity? They're searching for it. And here we sit with the word of God opened up to us. With the very chapter and verse before us that tells us the answer. It is here before us pointing us to the way. Showing us where unity can be found. And it's found in Christ. And Christ crucified and resurrected. We are the reconciled church of Christ. We should know the answer to what the world seeks. Yet even now, churches all around us, and even some in here, struggle with this word unity. However, if we left this word out of our own vocabulary, we would not be able to define what the church is. Because at its very core, a unity exists within it. Here before us, in the words inspired by the Holy Spirit, Paul is dealing with a church that in its very walls exists two groups, Jews and Gentiles, the original sharks. What was that movie again? Uh, West Side Story, Sharks and the Jets. Jets. There you go. That are representative of all that divides mankind, but doesn't point them to some superficial way to obtain harmony. He doesn't point to acceptance or conformity, but to Christ who reconciled them both in one body. He wanted them to see that they were all in need of Christ. They were all dead in their trespasses and ruined by their sin and stand condemned before a holy God. Paul points them to Christ Jesus as the only one that can make them right, to be reconciled to God. Christ Jesus as that only absolute If we look at verses 13 before the verses before us of the same chapter, Paul stresses Christ to them, desiring them to see that he is the only way. Look at verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you were who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross. By having put to death the enmity, and he came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. Christ has accomplished unity through his blood upon the cross, and he has been given a people to reconcile them and make them one with God and one with another, which is the very essence of his church, oneness. So as we look at our passage today, Paul continues to dig deeper in this issue of unity while bringing all of chapter 2 to a fitting end by looking at what this new relationship looks like by using figurative language. So in verses 19 through 22, verses we have before us, we will see three components of the reconciled church that will help us understand the foundation of our unity and our new relationship with one another. And the first component of the reconciled church that we come to is its identity. Its identity. Look with me at verse 
19. As Paul starts us with this conjunction, so then. Paul begins to sum up what he has explained step by step so far. While tightly connecting it to verse 18. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. And here comes our conjunction, so then. I think Paul uses this for a reason. He just explained what, what Christ has done to reconcile both groups into one. He abolished the law of commandments, preached peace to those who were far and near, and gave access in one spirit to the Father. I think he knew that there would be that one guy. There's always that one guy, that one person who's thinking to themselves, so what? What does this have to do with me? And maybe some of you in here today might be thinking the same. So then, it is this. You are no longer what you used to be. Believers have a new identity, a new position, a new status. Therefore, Paul uses this idea of family and state to illustrate this dramatic change in the believer's life and their new privileges in Christ, which is the very thing we need to take hold of. See, Paul is addressing Christians. And if most Christians understood who they are and what they are, most of the problems with our daily lives would just fade away. But often we fail at understanding the wonderful privileges we have in Christ. If we did, we would no longer bicker with one another or envy what others have or this world has or show partiality as we do. Therefore, the Apostle Paul puts it in this wonderful way. So then, you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. So here's our first picture he presents to us, strangers and aliens. And no, he's not talking about outer space aliens. I think that is a relatable picture that Paul gives us, though, because somehow we can relate to this in some, way, in some ways. A stranger is a person among us that are not of our own. They enter into a community or group with no knowledge of customs or traditions. They're not accustomed to their laws or culture, they're totally lost within the place they are at. When I was in the army, I deployed to Afghanistan, and it didn't take me long. Once I stepped off that plane, I realized I wasn't in the States anymore. As far as I could see, there was just sand and dust. All I could see around us was just people I never saw before in my life. They dressed differently. They acted differently. And the heat, everything you could say bad about the heat, it was worse. I was stranger to this place, and it was a very strange place to me. And I'm sure you've been in the same position before, especially if you have ever visited a new place or entered in a person's home that you've never met before. There's this sometimes awkward uneasiness when you step in there because you don't know who they are. You don't know how they run things. You don't even know the place you're at. You're a stranger. If we look at the second term that Paul uses, aliens, or as other translations have translated, sojourners or foreigners, it is a person who lives near or in a community, but they are not of it. Today we use terms like foreign nationals or legal immigrants to describe individuals who live in our nation but remain disconnected from it. And I know immigration is a hot topic, hot topic right now. 
It seems like certain people can argue for hours and hours over the status, the legal status of all who are here who enter in the United States. But sadly, it kind of helps me show the point that Paul is trying to illustrate, because even in their time, your citizenship mattered. Foreign nationals can participate in all things as citizens with passports and visas, but they endure all things as foreigners with a constant struggle to function as a citizen within it. They have no ownership of that nation or society. They can't vote. Their privileges are limited. They can be good neighbors, obey all the laws, are good employees and co-workers, and even speak the language of the nation. But as soon as they don't renew their visa or they lose their passport, their legal status in that country is in danger. But Paul doesn't use these terms in a positive sense, like saying they are those things, but in the negative. You are no longer aliens. And then he goes to the positive. You are fellow citizens. He wanted them to understand their new position as best as he can by rejecting their old. He's dealing with what he said in verse 12. Look with me. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now... You belong in a way you've never belonged before. You used to be stateless and an outsider, but now you are fellow citizens with the saints. You were strangers to all the privileges that true knowledge of God offered, but now Christ himself has bestowed all the privileges and understanding of his kingdom upon you. Even more so, you are of God's household. Did you hear that? of God's household. Did you notice the transition of their relationship? Paul uses the furthest relationship, strangers, and transitions them to the most intimate relationship, members of God's household, family. This is something totally different. This is why that's so then, it's so important, and why it's tightly connected to verse 18. We are not citizens of a kingdom with no access to the king. That is what the Jews had. They had a barrier between them and God. But now both Jews and Gentiles are fellow citizens of a kingdom with total access to the king because they are members of his household. They are children of the Most High God and fellow citizens under His rule. It's just like the old saying says, blood is thicker than water. Blood brings a deeper privilege. Paul understood this too in some manner. Back in Acts 22, Paul was stretched out, about to be whipped before he reminded them of his rights as a Roman citizen. And the commander asked him in verse 27, Tell me, are you a Roman? Paul said, yes. The commander answered, I acquired this citizenship with a large sum of money. What does Paul say? But I was born a citizen. Paul is trying to point us and these believers to something deeper than a physical blood, something deeper than an earthly citizenship. He's pointing us to something spiritual. We do not come by the citizenship, by perishable things like silver or gold 
or by some large sum of money or by way of animal blood or human birthright, but by the precious blood of Christ. This is what Paul has been implying since he started this letter. In Christ we have been redeemed through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. We have been adopted as sons and daughters through Christ, according to the kind intention of his will. And we have been sealed in Christ with the Holy Spirit of promise. It is Christ, Christ, and Christ alone that we are blood-bought children of God and citizens together. Paul is affirming this as a reality to these Ephesian believers, as though it was plainly noticeable. And fear of missing the point and the principle of this, I have to ask, is this plainly in us? Can we see it in us? Some might say right now, oh yes, I'm a, I'm a good citizen. I, I come to church. I work hard. I tithe regularly. I obey the laws. I'm a good citizen. If that's you, you're missing the point. You can be all of those things, but be a stranger in God's household. You may look like a citizen, enjoy some portion of Christ's church, but you are only living with a passport. It was Jesus that said in Matthew 7, Many that will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. In the end, they were found as strangers before God and in the midst of his people. So how do we know we hold the same position as these Ephesian believers? Well, here's a quick test. You can call this a citizenship test. It's one question. Are you living with a passport, or do you have a birth certificate? Jesus said in John 3, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And later he repeats himself, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That is... That which is born of flesh is flesh, strangers, foreigners. But that which is born of spirit is spirit, citizens, children. Have you been born again? Well, my friends, look to Christ. Don't sit oddly by without a birth certificate, for you are strangers and aliens to God. If you do not see your current status, you're only living with a passport within his kingdom, enjoying the common grace he shows to all. And one day Christ will return and revoke every passport and cast out every foreigner. Today is the day of salvation. But if you sit here today and you see your current state, you see yourself as a stranger to God and his promises, having no hope in this world, Oh, my friend, Christ preaches peace to those who are far and to those who are near. Look to Christ. He's here before you now. He said his blood is enough to bring you close and near to God, not as just a citizen. His blood is even deeper than that. He can make you his own child. My friend, it is by faith that we obtain what we need and these promises Believe upon Christ and his word, and you will be welcomed in his kingdom. But this brings us to the next component of the reconciled church that we come to, and it's, it's unity. It's unity. 
after Paul establishes these believers and us in our new identity in God's household, he shifts his metaphor towards construction. The first word he uses to make the shift is a Greek verb that translates to you were built upon. Some of your translations may say just built or are built or like mine, having been built. But no matter the translation, it serves the same purpose. It points them back to the response to the gospel in chapter 1, verse 13, and indicates the cause of chapter 2, verse 19, the verse we just went over. They are citizens with the saints and members of God's household because they listened to and were built on the foundations of the apostles, prophets, and Christ Jesus. So what does this have to do with unity? Well, as Paul develops this image of a building under construction, he's illustrating to them within this moment their newfound heritage. What do I mean by that? Well, the word heritage, of course, can bring different meanings and different ideas for different people. And it should. Heritage is a person's unique, inherited sense of family identity that unifies them throughout generations. It could be built upon certain values, tra traditions, culture, artifacts that were handed down by previous generations. What usually happens, though, is we absorb a sense of our heritage throughout our lives as we observe and experience the things that make our family unique. Most of us would consider heritage to be a positive, meaningful element of our family's identity and unity that we incorporate into our lives and pass along to succeeding generations. For these Gentiles, their heritage was different than their Jewish brothers. Jews had a strong sense of heritage. They went all the way back to Abraham, and it was passed down from family to family and was demonstrated through circumcision. But now as fellow citizens of a kingdom of God and members of God's household, they share the same heritage that unites them both, which is the common faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ that is passed down to seceding members of God's household. See, when he says, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, he's not saying that it was built upon a person or office but on their instructions. Apostles and prophets were both groups with teaching roles within the New Testament church. So their heritage derives from the individuals that were nearest to them, that brought the gospel of Christ to them, and who influenced their faith, because their teaching was built on the solid foundation of Christ, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. But what does that cornerstone mean? I mean, most of us probably don't have a construction background. Well, it's the first stone or block that ensures that the whole building is square, level, and stable. In the Army, again, I was a carpentry masonry specialist, and I was trained in how to lay block. I went down to the CBs, down in the Naval Construction Training Facility, and they taught us all things about construction and laying block. Well, the first time I did it, that first block, I didn't realize how important it was, but my drill instructor definitely reminded me after yelling at me several times. But the first time I did it, I didn't do it right. 
I had it off kiltered and it was messed up. And when I started laying the rest of the blocks, it was obvious that that first one was off. It was out of square. It was unlevel. You could see gaps and all this stuff. However hard I tried to fix it, to fake it until I make it, it didn't work. It was wrong. It was off. It was wrong. And he made me tear it down while he was yelling at me and telling, giving me encouragement in his own way. But, um, but believers, our heritage that unites us cannot be built on anything else but the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we build it on values or education or community life or work ethic or sports or music or anything else... It will not be able to stand. Our errors will be caused to... You would see our errors. It won't be sound. It will crumble. And if that happens, we will be found to be untrue. Our Christian heritage has been built on a solid foundation. And it cannot be changed by additions or subtractions or modifications offered by any so-called teachers of today. It was built on the solid foundation of the teachings of the apostles and prophets and is now preserved in the scriptures we hold in our hands today that has been passed down throughout generations. And what makes this foundation solid, what makes this foundation true is the central message and theme is Christ. This is why Christ Jesus was a stumbling block to the Jews instead of the chief cornerstone. Look at John 5, verses 39 and 40. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me, and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. That's why... This is what made the Jews want to throw stones at Christ because Christ's people have a greater heritage than Abraham. Look at John 8, 56, 58. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to them, You're not yet 50 years old. How and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Oh, brothers and sisters, let us not be ashamed of our heritage that unites us to Christ. Don't go around borrowing from this world to make our heritage culturally acceptable. But let it be expressed through scriptures. Let the scriptures be what we pass down to our families. Let it be our national identity. Let it be our culture. Let us absorb the scriptures throughout our lives as we absorb and experience the glory of Christ that makes our family united and unique. And let us go into this world and pass the gospel along to those who are not family yet. Romans 10 verses 14 and 15 tells us this. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed how will they believe in him who they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they're sent? Just as it's written, written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. And later in verse 17, he says this. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Our new heritage that is in the proclamation and the teaching of the word of Christ 
Paul continues to expound more and more on this metaphor of, of this building as he shifts to the individual stones that make up this structure. And so this brings us to our next purpose. So Paul, again, has led us through our new identity that involves our new citizenry, through our new birth into God's house, and then he unites us together with this new heritage that makes us more. And so, he, again, he expounds on this metaphor with these stones that make up this structure to show the purpose of Christ's kingdom and church which is the outpouring of the Spirit of God to all the nations until the glory of God fills the earth. Look with me at verses 21 and 22, and you kind of see this purpose. Here Paul immediately points to Christ in both of these verses. It repeats the phrase, in whom. Look at the first phrase, in whom the whole building is fitted together. It's, a, it's, it's the, once again Paul pointing us and these believers to the very core of our faith, to the one absolute, Christ. For without Christ, none of this is possible. Yet this phrase is serving another purpose as well. It is connecting verse 20 with the church's unity to verses 21 and 22, its purpose. Christ is the cause of both of them. He's the cause of our unity and he's the cause of our purpose. If we look at our heritage in Scripture, we can begin to see what Paul is trying to explain. Look at Galatians 3, verses 8 and 9. The Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. So how does these blessings come about? Well, later on he explains in 13 and 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. It came through Christ and the purpose was to us to receive the promise of the Spirit. Our citizenship in the kingdom of God was never meant to be just for the lucky chosen few, but it is to reach out into all the corners of the world, to all the nations with the gospel, until the chosen many would be gathered and joined together as a whole building in Christ. And this can be seen in the next phrase in verse 21, being fitted together. It shows that these stones are unique and has to be joined together as one. If you have ever been to a brickyard or looked at a brick wall or stone wall, each brick and stone has its own shade of color, its own texture, its own shape. So when the builder comes to fit them together, he has to be intentional on how he joins them together in its construction. It communicates to us that each individual stone serves a specific function within this building. But look again at the verse. What is the building doing? It is growing. It's growing into a holy temple in the Lord. This verb growing or grows in Greek is normally used for plants and people. Paul uses it here to communicate two truths to us. First, this building project has just begun and continues. 
And secondly, that this building, as it grows into a holy temple, it's not like the old, made with physical stones, or to be a national shrine, or to be in a localized site. It is a living, spiritual building, an international community, and a worldwide spread. It is wherever God's people are to be found. In 1 Peter chapter 2, 4, and 6, Paul kinda, Peter kind of expounds on this a little bit more to give us a little bit better understanding. He says this, And coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by man, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in scriptures. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. These believers in Ephesus and us today are these living stones that are being joined together into a holy temple in Christ. And its purpose is the same as the old. Look at, at the end of verse 22. It tells us, a dwelling of God in the Spirit. God is not tied to holy buildings, but to holy people to his own society, to his own redeemed children. He dwells and lives in them, both individually and as a community. And what Paul says about the whole building in verse 22, Paul affirms it in the lives of these Ephesian believers, in whom you also. Oh, these words must have been sweet to their ears. For their experience with the Jewish temple was one opposite of what I just mentioned. It was one of exclusion and rejection. But now as this building grows into a holy temple, you also are built together alongside other believers to form this dwelling place for God. Listen to this one scholar said about this, and I love this. As Paul was dictating this letter, he stood in Ephesus the magnificent marble temple of Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, and in whose inner shrine there was a statue of the goddess. At the same time in Jerusalem, there stood the Jewish temple, built by Herod the Great, barricading itself against the Gentiles and now against God, whose Shekinah glory it had housed in its inner sanctuary for centuries but whose glory as revealed in its Messiah it had sought to extinguish. Two temples, one pagan and the other Jewish, each designed by its devotees as a divine residence, but both, listen to this, but both empty of the living God. For now there is a new temple, a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. It is His new society, His redeemed people scattered throughout the inhabitant world. They are His home on earth. They will also be His home in heaven, for the building is not yet complete. It grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are sweet words. And they should be sweet words today for us. 
It is a sweet reminder that every one of us who have come to faith in Jesus Christ has been joined together into this growing structure for God with an intentional purpose within the household of God. But so often we don't understand what it is. So often we, like the Jews, separate the sacred from the secular, church life from personal life. We often think that spirituality is associated with coming to church, being good, serving as a pastor or elder, or being a missionary, and not the practical realities of life, like laundry, raising children, education, law, work, or gardening. I might be wrong in saying this, but I think many of us struggle in finding out how we fit into this building. Who am I in God's church? Let these words comfort you. You also are built together. Simply put, your entire life is part of this building, which means the dwelling place of God is integrated into every aspect of your life, causing all of life to be for God's glory, because the Spirit of God dwells in every believer. Think about it. If you take this passage overall, you don't stop being any of these things once you leave here today. You are those things all the time. So whether it's at work, at home, teaching kids in classrooms, working on the farm, or at the baseball field, your life functions within the church because you are the church. But I think the real problem why people struggle finding their place within the church is because they started to build on another foundation. They have built off the wrong cornerstone. And as much as they try to fit their lives within it, they can't because it becomes unstable and it's off balanced. What fits us together, what unites us as a whole, is the gospel of Christ. My friend, we don't enter this by some accident or by some other different way than these Ephesian believers. We share the same heritage as they did by the preaching of the gospel of Christ. It is the very means by this, which this building grows. Each and every one of us who believes in Christ for salvation, when we came to faith, it was built upon another faith. And as we proclaim the gospels to others, it continues to grow as others are joined upon our faith. That is our purpose. That is our purpose in every aspect of our lives. To declare the gospel in every sector. To declare it on the streets, at home, in the marketplace, at work, and at the baseball fields. Wherever we find ourselves in life, that is our purpose. Paul says this later, which we'll come, cover in chapter 4, verse, starting in verse 7. But to each one of us, grace was giving according to the measure of Christ's gift. What was its purpose? For the equipping of saints. That's what we see in chapter, verse 12. For the equipping of saints for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And later on in verse 15 and 16, he speaks more on it. But speaking in truth and love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, Christ, 
from whom the whole building, from the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. You matter. I need each and every one of you to speak the gospel to me. And you need the same back. I need to do it to you. Let this be our culture. Let this be our purpose. So to close, I want to leave you with an encouragement and two warnings. First, the encouragement. I love how Paul writes because you can look back and trace the sequences of all of his thoughts. He paints with a large canvas sometimes with bold brush strokes, and sometimes we don't see ourselves in the picture. Paul is talking to Christians. That is his audience. So if you are here today and you have faith in Christ, he's talking to you. This is for you. Hear me. You were alienated from God and from his people, but Christ died to reconcile you together. So now you are no longer the strangers you were, but the king king kingdom over which God rules, the family which he loves, and the temple in which he dwells. More simply, you were excluded, you have been reconciled, and Christ has brought you home. But how did he do this? Well, he sent someone like you to preach and teach you the gospel. Oh, my friend, he's still building his reconciled church, and it's growing into a holy temple unto the Lord. We should go into all the nations and preach the Christ to all who are far and near. That is our goal. That is our purpose. That is what you do in this church. Now for my first warning. Some of you in here have been hurt by churches. You have felt excluded or you have experienced the damage of disunity and discord. I can tell you why it happened. It's easy. We just went over it. It's because they forgot who they were. They forgot their heritage in Christ. They neglected it for the world. But the danger for you is the same. You see the flaws in the stones that God has fitted together. And instead of reaching for something to fix it, you don't reach for the gospel. You reach for what the world says. You say that's the way to fix it, but it's not. Only Christ can heal what is broken. So look to him for healing and pass it along to others to be reunited. And lastly, some of you sit here today as strangers and foreigners to God. And you might ask, how can you tell? Well, let me ask you, do you feel at home with Christ's people? Are you feel at ease with the company that you're in? Or is it some other company? Do you understand the language of his people? Do you love his law and his people? Do you share in the same heritage? And more importantly, have you been born again? Christ is king today, and you will meet him one day. Don't be a stranger when you do. Today he offers grace and peace to you. Look to him. His blood brings you near to God. 
Don't take my word for it, but take his. He says this, everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on those last days. Stranger, come to Christ. Come and be welcomed. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the day. Thank you for your word. Lord, I'm just a man. I stumble over words and I stumble over sentences and all these things, Lord. You know me. Lord, I desire for everyone who here today that they know Christ. Not just some knowledge of facts, but they know you as a family member. One that they can feel love from, one they can feel comfort from, and one they can feel at ease with. So Lord, I pray that you just use my screwed up words. Now I pray that it reaches out to anyone who's here. Lord, let those who are discouraged, who are maybe be lost and can't figure out how they belong, Lord, let, let these verses encourage them. That they didn't come by this by accident, but that you have a purpose for them. But Lord, so often we over-spiritualize everything and we forget the simple things. Is to highlight who you are. Our purpose is to press Christ to everyone we see and allow them to see Christ in us. Lord, that is our lives. Lord, you've given us this book in our hands as a heritage to hand down and to teach. We're not using any kind of that are different from what we need, Lord, you've given us the proper tool and you've handed it down generation after generation, even to these Ephesian believers. So, Lord, let us pick up what you have given us and let us use it. Let us glory in it. Let it be We'd like to thank you for listening to the sermon audio from Covenant Church at Tuscaloosa. If you have any questions or would like to know more about our church, you can visit our website at www.covchurchtusk.com or you can email info 
at covechurchtusk.com. God bless.